From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. We recorded a podcast last time where I introduced this idea of defending capitalism on a moral basis. And tonight I have my friend and associate, Mitch Whitus. Thanks for joining me, Mitch. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. You know, you, I asked you to, well, you've been bugging me for a while to do this podcast on capitalism and defending capitalism, and, and I appreciate that. Uh, you and I have known, known each other for a, a number of years. You, you helped me kind of get some gigs on talking on co- college campuses, and uh, then you went away for a while, and you went and did your MBA, and now you're this kind of uh, high-priced consultant, so I appreciate you spending some time with me tonight. And, oh, my and, goodness, and, uh, in the last podcast where I just kind of rambled for a little bit, I talked about why I want to do this, uh, who I'm trying to address. You know, the why again is, you know, we got, we got problems in not only in the U S certainly in the U S but worldwide about people being confused about the role of the state. What kind of system is the proper system? What kind of system people really can live and thrive under? You know, there's a lot of people who are attracted to this socialist collectivist ideas today. And so my motivation was to say, let's start talking about capitalism. I've been doing uh, college campus talks and speaking on uh, the free market roadshow in Europe and, and talking for these leadership programs about this whole idea of capitalism and it being the moral system for a while now. But I thought, okay, it's worthwhile. Mitch has got a good idea. I should be doing a podcast. Today, we'll talk about maybe defining terms. I mean, last time I defined capitalism a little bit formally, but we can dive into that a little bit. I talked about the the people I want to address, and just briefly, to bring you up to speed since you weren't here last time. I don't necessarily want to talk or use terms that are appealing to traditional conservatives. I probably do by default, um, but I'm hoping to address people who, first of all, people who are producers, people who are creative, people who are builders, people who are ambitious and want to understand the kind of environment where they can thrive. So productive people is one category. Two is people who are younger, who are not jaded, who are not set in their ways, and I kind of talked about the fact that all my daughters in this are in this category. I have three daughters who are age 19 to 25, and I don't think of them as being pro-capitalism, pro-socialism, pro-anything necessarily. They're, they're pro-want to get on with their lives and, and make progress in, in their careers and their relationships. I, I want to talk to young people like that, people who are in their you know, teens and 20s who are separating from their parents. Maybe they're a little bit rebellious but they want to understand the world better. So that's the second category. And the third category are people that I call sort of left of center, but rational people. Maybe they're liberals, maybe they consider themselves liberals, but they're still rational in the sense of they understand business, they understand a little bit about getting things done, they understand the reality of the world. So those are the three categories that I'm trying to address and, and maybe attract. And so, Mitch, I appreciate you being here and just hoping you can help me move the conversation along. You know, we, you and I were talking off air beforehand about the kind of things we could talk about. One is, you know, this idea of defining capitalism and, and defining our terms a little bit better. Where do you think we should go tonight? Yeah, well, first of all, Mike, like you said, we've been talking about podcasts for a long time. So I'm really excited that you've embarked on this podcast journey. And 
like you said, I think one thing that's really important is to define our terms because I think some of the ways that you use terms might be different than people are accustomed to. So I know that, you know, in school economics classes, I think of capitalism as in, you know, industry is controlled by private individuals to make profit. That's kind of how I think a lot of people think about capitalism. And I think when you talk about capitalism, you have something very specific in mind. You're really talking about something maybe a little bit more broad, a little bit more of a, of a moral socioeconomic system than what we might be taught in the economics classroom. And I think it'd be really important for you to dive into what do you really mean by that term capitalism for those of us who have not had the pleasure of being your student and to have known as much about it as you do. Yeah, you're right. It, it is, it's a much broader concept. And I think you're right that, that a lot of people, you know, grew up with these ideas of what capitalism is, specifically capitalism as, you know, being business, being pro-business and profit-driven commerce. And they, they oftentimes have a, you know, sort of a middle of the road. They, everyone likes money and having more for themselves, but they don't necessarily feel good about the idea of profit. Um, so they have a vague idea of what capitalism is. But you're right. I mean a much different idea. It's, it's broader than that, and it does involve morality, and it involves a, a, a socio-political context. So capitalism formally is a system that's based upon the recognition and protection of property rights. That's, that's the bulk of it. I mean – it doesn't need to involve more, even more fundamentally individual rights. People have a right to their life. They have a right to their, their liberty, their freedom of action, freedom of movement. They get to do what they want. They own themselves. So the first property is owning yourself. You know, I own my mind and I own my body. You don't get to do anything with my stuff, my mind or body, certainly. And the fruits of my mind and body, meaning my work, what I produce with my mind and my body is mine. Those products are mine. Those are my property, and I get a trade with you. And that's, that is the essence of a civilized society, is me and you getting to decide, okay, I have some value that I've produced with my mind or body and or body, and you have some values and some things that you uh, have created, and so we get a trade. That's the essence of what capitalism is, the recognition and protection of individual rights including specifically property rights, crucially property rights, where all property is privately held or privately owned. And that's a bizarre idea for most people um, to be able to say, well, everything is privately owned. There's no such thing as collective property. There's no government property. There's no, there's no commons. There's no, uh, you know, that's the society you're talking about? That, that sounds like a dream world and impossible, right? Yeah. And I would really like for you to also delve into this term property rights because I think that's another thing where we think, well, property rights. So that means you're talking about, you know, I've got a house with three acres. And so when people come onto my property, I can have them kicked off and I'll call the police. But I think what you mean by property rights is also a little bit more broadly than just physical land that your house might sit on or, or where your business is located. So can you talk a little bit more about how property rights, this idea, fits into your idea of capitalism as a whole. 
Yeah, and again, it starts with the individual. And so that, that, that whole idea of first property, meaning, you know, I have an identity, I have my own mind, I have my own body, that's, that is mine. That's clearly mine. And then what I produce with it, including land or, or buildings or, like you said, the kind of traditional idea of property, like I can kick you off my stuff, my, my property. This is my land. Mitch, get the hell off. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call the police or I'm going to do something. We're going to have words here. We're going to have words and I'm gonna, <laughs> maybe things are going to get worse than words because you need to go. It's mine and you got to get off. Or, or no, in a better sense, you know, welcome to my house. Welcome to my home. Welcome to my land. Come on. Let's enjoy my property together. We're, we're going to go for a walk and... And you can see my fields or, or, or what I've produced here on my estate. It is different than that in the sense that anything that a person can potentially own, you know, whether it's my car, it's not just a house or my land, but it's, it could be my car, or it could be my guitars. We're sitting here in this wonderful studio in the world famous, not quite yet world famous, famous Green Dragon Tavern. It, it will be world famous. I know, and it's I'm great. It's, it. it's a perfect context to be able to do this kind of recording, right? <laughs> There's a whole story behind the Green Dragon Tavern, which we'll get into it maybe at a later podcast or a later episode. But we're we're sitting here in this wonderful studio that has all kinds of unique recording property, but it has lots of musical instruments. So you know, these unfortunately I don't own these instruments. Someone else does, but it's property. You know, so their musical instruments are a form of property. The, all the recording equipment, all the technology that we see around us in this recording studio is someone's property. It's their stuff. It's not just land. It's cars. It's material property, but it's also intellectual property, which is perhaps the most crucial property in one sense. But it's anything that can be owned. And that's that's a unique development in human history where people can say, no, it's not just about the land or the cattle or horses that you own, but what else can you own? Can What else can you define as yours versus everybody else's or someone else's. The whole idea behind capitalism as a unique system is people being free to create, not just to work the land, which is, you know, uh, an early form of property rights and and being able to produce agricultural and and sustenance, people, things that people need to live, you know, food, Uh, people growing crops or growing animals to be able to live off of. But more importantly that, than that, you know, the kinds of things, the kinds of equipment that would be necessary to do that efficiently, farm equipment or something like that, or like we said, cars or all kinds of material goods. Certainly lots of productive capital has been involved in industry, big tech or big manufacturing kinds of uh, property where someone owns a factory that has all kinds of intricate uh, manufacturing capabilities that's capital equipment that creates wealth, that can create lots of profits for that owner. Well, do they own that? If, they, if they've created it, do they own that property? So property is a very broad topic uh, in terms of what a person can own. But the question is, do they own it? Is it theirs? If you have property rights, that means you do have full control and in, in absolute disposition of that which you own. You get to decide. Otherwise, it's no longer yours. If someone gets to tell you, well, you can use it for my purposes or the common good purposes, then you no longer have full control or property control over that which you own. And the unique thing about capitalism is, no, it says you get your stuff and you have full control. With 
the little caveat that you don't get to violate anybody else's property. Maybe that's a little one. Maybe it's a big one. It depends on whether you're trying to actually control other people or control their their stuff. But it boils down to capitalism, meaning that you have full control over the things that you own and everyone else has that same right. Whatever they own, they get a control and dispose of or use or have as they want. And as long as those two ownership rights don't collide, then we're good. We get to do what we want. The whole role of government is what happens when they do collide. Or if you're trying to take my stuff, or if you think I'm trying to take your stuff, or I've some, in some way or another violated your rights, um, that's where the government comes in and says, okay, now we need to figure this out. We need to protect those rights. So, Mike, something else you – a term that you threw around at the beginning of our conversation, collectivism – and what you just spoke about, you spoke about individual rights. You threw around these terms, capital, wealth, being able to claim property rights over things that you own and, and that being recognized by government. But why is all of this so different or better than this term you threw around collectivism? And what do you mean when you say collectivism? Because I think of ants or something you know, working together to build an anthill or something. I think of that as a collective. So I'm assuming you're not talking just about anthills. I'm assuming you're talking about people. So can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, that's good because um, there are lots of cases where we are collective. We do work in teams. You know, we cooperate with each other. I say, okay, I got an idea, and can you help me out with this? You know, in, just in this example, you know, we've got a few people here. We're saying, okay, let's talk about this podcast, and you know, we're going to do it as a team, um, and that's a good thing. That's a good cooperative, collaborative, voluntary association that we have. And most businesses are that. Most most uh, enterprises, most things that actually create value in the world are where you have more than one individual who's saying. I've got some stuff, you've got some stuff, maybe we have some ideas, maybe we have some real physical property stuff, but we're going to collaborate with those and try to create better value. But when you talk about collectivism as a system, as opposed to capitalism or individualism as a system, a moral and an economic system, what, what that means is, and, and collectivism is the most, probably the broadest term as opposed to capitalism or individualism. Collectivism encompasses all the other isms that people have heard about in terms of history. Mercantilism or communism and socialism or uh, fascism. All those are basically in the bucket of, you know, it's not about the individual. It's not about the individual and his stuff and his life and his purposes and his dreams and goals and his property. It's about the collective. It's about the group. It's about the group and the higher purpose of the group which is always used by someone who says, I'm the one who speaks for the group, right? Because um, no one can really speak for the group. You know, no one can speak for America. Can anyone speak for America? Well, doesn't the president do that, Mike? Well, I don't know about you, but for the last several presidents, they certainly haven't spoken for me. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's been a long time, and maybe no one in my lifetime in terms of a president that I've seen or had a chance to vote on or, not, or vote against 
spoke for me. And and even if you pick out, you know, the heroic people that I think of as great presidents, you know, if you talk about, you know, Calvin Coolidge, or if you go back to George Washington, or the historic heroes, Abraham Lincoln in our history, didn't speak for all Americans. You know, certainly Abraham Lincoln was at a very controversial time in our in our history. And there were a lot of people who thought, and, and certainly a couple of them who want to shoot him, <laughs> there were definitely people who thought, no, this guy does not speak for me. Uh, a president can't speak for the whole country. He can't speak for every individual. Now, he can tap into sort of a, a, uh, a cultural consciousness that's going on. He can, ta- he can, and that's what they try to do. They try to feed off what's going on in the culture today and say, can I get enough of those people to vote for me, enough of those individuals to vote for me, and then we're, I'm going to say I have a mandate and I'm, I'm, voting, I'm speaking for the people. But they really they aren't speaking for everyone. They might speak for a majority, and we can talk about the whole idea of democracy. That's a crucial idea that m- most Americans are really confused about today is you know, the, the, the idea of m- a majority or democracy being a, a, a benevolent idea or a good thing in terms of how we operate as a, as a society. It's, it's not, and we, we can talk about that. Yeah, that's probably like – four or five podcasts worth of material is what that sounds like, Mike. So we probably shouldn't delve into that too much today. But I think what what I'm so curious about is, you know, why even have this conversation about collectivism versus capitalism? Why is that so important? Why do we even care really what system we live under? You know, what our political leaders think about these sorts of things? Why are you here? <laughs> well, uh, that's a really good question. It's, it, and it's, there's a couple of things that I would say. Uh, w- one is that um, we, have, we have history to learn from. We could see, if, if we're honest, and we go back and look at the kinds of systems that have been created by humans, we can see which ones work. And so then the, the question is, well, that begs another question. What do we mean by work? Uh, you know, what does it mean for a system to work for people? And and I think that the good definition would be, do people thrive under it? Do people do well? Do do you have general prosperity? Do you have uh, people being healthy? Do you have people living longer? Do you have people uh, having better lives? Um, That's one measurement. Uh, But also, what about the, you know, what about each individual? What about each individual as a precious and in themselves, um, that's how that's how capitalism views uh, individuals versus groups. So why have this conversation? Um, if you care about people, and if you care about your own life, if your own life matters, and not just in some abstract way of you know, uh, I want this broad idea of happiness, but you know, thinking about what is my purpose in life? What do I like to do? What makes me happy? And, you know, do I have control over my life and what I do with it? Then it's a crucial discussion. So I think what I hear you saying is that capitalism is important for a couple of different reasons. One of those is just thinking about the material well-being of people, longevity, wealth, just having the resources to be able to live a good life. But what I also hear you saying is that just in terms of as the individual being able to live the life that you want to without coercion from 
what other people want you to do. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that what I'm hearing? No, I think that's excellent. I, I think you've done a good job of putting <laughs> words in my mouth. Um, it is that. It's both that idea of, you know, as you mentioned, having material prosperity and having people live comfortably and happily, but it's also even more importantly, you know, that, that, that idea of being self-actualized, being, pe- people being able to reach their highest and best potential. Um, that is the kind of system that we're talking about. Why is it important to contrast collectivism against individualism or against capitalism or against property rights or people being able to control their own destiny and voluntarily work with others? It's because people's lives matter. And it's not just people as in some abstraction, as in a you know, group of Americans or a group of you know, South Americans or a group of uh, Chinese people, but it's about individual people. Um, it's about individuals who matter. And that's why you, it's an important discussion to have what is the kind of structure, what is the kind of structure of a government and society that actually does facilitate individuals being able to live their lives in a happy, prosperous, and uh, uh, bountiful, fruitful way. Um, that's why it's crucial is, is actually having people be able to thrive. What is the kind of system that allows people to thrive? And on a practical level, we've seen history play out. The more times you have you know, a society that does recognize rights and allows people freedom to, to exercise their rights, you get wonderful, incredible, practical consequences. Uh, wealth production, uh, spirituality, people being able to to live the way they want. And the opposite is also true historically. Whenever you've had more controls, more people living under force, not voluntary trade, not voluntary systems, but coercive systems, you've had nothing but death, destruction, and misery. That's a historical fact. But yeah, that's why I think it's crucial. That's why I'm here to talk about this. And, um, you know, that, that, I don't know, does that give you... Did I answer your question? You did. And since I think the theme of this conversation is about defining the terms that you're probably going to be using for as long as your podcast goes on, something else you just mentioned, you talked about voluntary trade, free trade. That's another term that gets thrown around a lot these days, particularly in the context of quote-unquote capitalism. What do you mean when you're talking about voluntary trade, free trade. What in the heck, what in the heck does that mean? Well, it kind of goes back to that assumption we made about, pro- or that, that, that statement we mean about property. Property being absolute. So if you own your house or your land or your car or your guitars, whatever it is, you get to decide what to do with those. You can destroy them. You know, you could, you could say, I'm going to dismantle this guitar and bust it up and it's mine. I, get, I can destroy them or I can play beautiful music on this guitar. I get to decide what happens with this guitar. Um, so the, the, that concept has to come first. The absolute nature of property rights. A person being sovereign in their own being, their own body and mind, and then whatever else they own, whatever else they've produced, either by their own mind and body or traded for because they've produced some value to trade with. And that, that's where you get into this idea of voluntary cooperation and non-coercion, people being able to trade and make deals. 
and that takes that takes the differences that we have in so many ways. You know, human beings are equal and should be equal before the law, but they're unequal in so many other ways. It allows for them to take advantage of each other in a good way, in the sense of saying, you know, I have, you know, you have guitar, you have a guitar, and as an example, and I don't have a guitar, and I can't even play the guitar. Play me a few tunes, Mitch. I want to hear your music. And maybe the trade is just me complimenting you on your your, your virtuosity in terms of being able to, to play this instrument. No, I want the cold, hard cash, Mike. <laughs> or maybe I'm paying you because <laughs> you're, you're, you know, you're that good. And I'm like, I will pay you every time you play, Mitch. I want to hear you, and I want to hear you in concert, and I want to see you at Red Rocks. Um, <laughs> Which will never happen. But, but you know, the, the whole point is we get to decide what kind of trade we have. You know, sometimes it's a matter of we're trading dollar, you know, cash on the bear hood, so to speak, for some particular product or service that someone else is providing. But it might be a trade where we're just exchanging ideas. You know, or you're, you're strumming your guitar and I'm, I'm listening to you and saying, you know, giving you feedback on a song you wrote or something like that. It, it, the essence of a civil society is where people say, you know, I have some value in the world and I'm offering it to you and want to know what you think and I want to trade with you. Maybe formally, and that's where money does come in and it facilitates all kinds of trades. It's what allows us to specialize and, and have this whole division of labor where I don't have to produce all my foods. I can just play my guitar. Again, this is facetious because I can't play guitar. But you know, a person can specialize and say, here's what I do well, and I don't have to grow my own food, and I don't have to build my own house. I don't know how to help. I can't, you know, I can't wield a hammer or a saw, but I can certainly provide value in other ways, whether it's producing music or philosophical content, or in my case, you know, uh, giving investment advice and financial planning advice. You know, this is my, that's my day job. You know, people can specialize. They can decide, here's what my passion is, and hopefully someone will see that value that I'm providing and they will pay me in some way, maybe monetarily, maybe not, but we can trade with each other. That is the essence of civilization where we have, no one gets to use a club. No one gets to say, I'm taking your stuff. No one gets to use force against the other person. Uh, that, as I say, is the essence of a civilized rights-respecting society. That's what capitalism is, where we formally agree that there is going to be no force, no initiation of force against other people to take their stuff. We trade with each other. Now, I don't want to get into a rabbit hole because I think this could also be four or five or six or, or many, many uh, materials worth of, of podcasts. But something else that, that you had mentioned was talking about, you know, this term individual rights and how, you know, of course, there's Americans, there's people from China, there's people from Mexico. And so we could think about people as these political identities. But we, what you're talking about is thinking about people as individuals. But when we talk about free trade, there's no doubt that people live in under polit different political systems. So when you're talking about free trade, are you just talking about, well, we have free trade within our country, where we know we all kind of live under one political system that ideally respects these property rights, and then we trade differently, or maybe not at all with people in other countries you know, what do you mean by that? How does free trade and individual rights apply to people in other countries, especially maybe in countries where they don't believe in, in any of the things you've been talking about? 
Yeah, the idea of uh, man's rights, as, as some of the founding fathers used that term, and as I use it uh, under the idea of capitalism, is it's universal in the sense that it, it doesn't apply just to Americans who were born native in, in America. Um, now, ideally, you have a system, and again, you, you, you implied, and I agree with you, that uh, maybe our system doesn't actually protect those rights in the first place. <laughs> That's what it should, and that was that was the that was the vision of the founders, and that's what the manifestation of the American ideal was for for many years. We're beginning to lose that, although we have you know we we have mostly uh, a good system where we a lot of our property rights are protected. We don't live under capitalism now. That's that's one of the things I said last time is there's no such thing as capitalism in any manifestation here in the U.S. or anywhere in the world. And, and, and the opposite is also true. There's no socialist, you know, utopia or uh, communist ideal out there either. In fact, that's one of the things that I think is important. I'm, I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole, but I want to make sure you remind me, Mitch, to come back to make, making sure you're answer, I answer the question. But I wanted to make sure I made the point that these are ideals. Capitalism is an ideal. Now, as Ayn Rand said, it's an unknown ideal. People don't even know what it means. And that's partly the, one of the purposes of our, our podcast here is to try to explore this ideal of capitalism. But it is an ideal. It's, it's a goalpost. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, this idea that you, I believe that we should work toward and, and it is possible where all property is privately owned and there's no such thing as the initiation of force amongst individuals. People don't get a, they don't get a, you know, pound each other over the head to, and take each other's stuff. That, that's a simplistic way of saying, you know, it's a civilized society. But on the other hand, there's lots of people who say, well, socialism, this whole idea of collective ownership of everything, no one really owns, there's no such thing as private property, the opposite of capitalism. There's no such thing as private property and we just all kind of get along and we have enough stuff out there. Um, that's also, in a sense, an ideal. It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, uh, a construct out there that, and, and many socialists will say, it still is an ideal, it just hasn't been properly executed. We've never had truly uh, good socialists implementing socialism. But now we do. But <laughs> now maybe we have a shot at that, right? No one really believes that. And, and one major point I want to make is that, again, historically, the closer you've gotten to that, quote, ideal of socialism, You've had nothing but mass murder, really, mass starvation and murder. If you, if you look at, you know, whether it's uh, Soviet Russia or Maoist uh, China or Cambodia or now we have current examples like Venezuela, whenever you've gotten closer to the socialist ideal, it's been really pretty miserable for all human beings in any practical way that people will factually look at. So it, it doesn't work. And the closer you get to it, the worse it gets. If you look at the facts and the ideal of capitalism, the closer we've gotten to that ideal, whenever we've had a, a, a system of government that did have the, the idea of individualism and rights as its central core, you've had nothing but progress, real progress, not progressivism progress, but real progress in, in every imaginable way, whether it's material progress or, as I mentioned, spiritual or you know, civilization, people respecting individuals of different uh, uh, races or different ethnicities or different sexual orientations, wherever you've had 
a government that actually did respect the rights of individuals, you've moved closer to that, what I call an actualized potential of, of that, that is con, congruent with human nature where you're getting better results. Um, so I, I think in terms of the two opposing ideals, if you look at them in terms of any actual results, you've seen uh, you know, a real contrast. But back to your original question, you were asking about, tell me again, what, what was the way you phrased the question? Mitch? When you talk about free trade, voluntary trade, are you talking about making sure we have free trade with other Americans, with people yeah. all over the world? You know, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is if you're an individual who has freedom and you have sovereignty over yourself and your property, you get to decide who you're trading with. So you can, cha- you can trade with people in systems that don't necessarily respect rights. So again, I as an American who maybe is under a system that sort of respects my rights, I can trade with Chinese people who live under a system who recently have been better about respecting rights and now they're going backwards, you know, they're going the wrong direction. But I get to trade with whoever I want. Now, does that mean my government has to protect me in the context of something that's not their jurisdiction? Can they protect my rights in China? If I trade with a Chinese person and that Chinese person or company you know, steals my property, in fact, this is a, a real case right now. A lot of people are accusing, I think with good evidence, that Chinese companies haven't necessarily been innovative. They've been really great at stealing intellectual property from American companies. Well, those American companies, they get to decide whether they trade with those Chinese companies or those Chinese individuals. They get to decide. Does the American government have an obligation to protect the rights of Americans in China? Well, they can try, but they don't have jurisdiction. And they don't necessarily, they, they, can't, they don't have the capability of going in to say, okay, we're going to make sure that your property is protected in China. Um, but I get to decide as an individual who I trade with. That's my choice. My government should never violate that choice. Now, if it comes down to an issue of the, the central government role, which I have talked about some, and hopefully I'm being clear, the government's role is to protect individual rights of Americans. That's what the, our American government's job is. If there are individuals around the world who are violating my rights, then my government should do the best job they can. But they can't necessarily go into other countries and protect every right that I have if I've made the choice to trade with someone who's not living under a similar system. They should do the best job they can, but they can't necessarily protect me in all cases. I have to take some of that risk. So a government, my government might say, well, you know, you're on your own. You're, you're trading with these people who are in a system that doesn't respect rights. We don't have jurisdiction there. We're not going to go to war over this. Maybe that we will, you know, if a large number of Americans are threatened by this. But you're choosing to trade with these Chinese people, and you have to bear the consequences if they rip you off or if they are taking your property and we can't protect you. And there's so many other places we could go from that, Mike. Absolutely. So that will have to be another five or six podcasts worth of material. But you know, one thing that comes to mind, of course, is this debate that we've had for the past four or five years, which is well, free trade is nice, but you know what's going to make America great again and and how should the government interact with society to make sure to or to try to build wealth for Americans? And I I think 
that is a discussion that is worth having, I think, in, in one of your episodes, you know, is what does that mean? And what is the role of government in terms of that? But for now, I think a lot of the definitions that have been really important to to discuss, I think, for the future of your podcast, I think we've we've covered, we've covered what do you mean by capitalism, property rights, free trade, collectivism. I think these are terms you're going to be throwing around a lot in the future. And I think we've covered those. So was there were there any other terms you wanted to make sure that we covered now, Mike, that are going to be really important as we go forward? You know, I, I just want to introduce the idea because most people, and I, I'm going to end on, I think we should end on this, Mitch. I, um, there are moral terms. You know, we've been talking about property rights and rights has mo- a moral connotation for for most people, they kind of have this vague idea of rights must be you know, equal to some kind of moral evaluation. But I sometimes use you know, moral judgment, and I think it's important for people to do this, you know, good versus evil. Um, we won't necessarily have a chance to dive into that in detail today, but I think it is important for people to make that connection to when I say capitalism is a moral good, I'm not talking about just on a practical level, you know, it produces more goods and services and people thrive better economically and material. I'm talking about moral in the sense of good versus evil. And so sometimes I'll use this term, you know, evil or righteous or use those um, things that you hear in church, you know, or you hear, you hear in, uh, in a different context outside of business. But I think that's important to, to bring in. Because it's crucial right now that people realize the value of a rights-respecting kind of context in society, we have to use judgment. We have to say, this is good and this is bad. Um, and so I want to make sure we end on that, that we're going to be using not just you know, business and economic terms, but we're going to actually make them connected to moral judgments uh, and that can be the difficult part in terms of, uh, especially with most of the context that people have grown up with in a sort of moral relativistic society where people go, well, yeah, that's good based on your feeling and your context and your, your truth or your, your context, but that can't be universal. And, and I do want to make the point that we're going to try to make the case and I believe that it's crucial to make the case that there are some things that are universal and absolutes. So that may be worth uh, us ending on. Again, I appreciate you being here, Mitch. It's been fantastic uh, having this conversation with you, and I know you're going to be able to to help me move this along. Again, we're we're talking about capitalism as the only moral socioeconomic system, and we're coming to you from the famous or soon-to-be-famous Green Dragon Tavern. This is Michael Williams signing off with Capital Ideas. And next time we hope to have another capital idea or two that you can make use of in your life. 